Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hi, welcome to CRISPR Cuts. This is Minu. And this is Brittany. And today our guest is Alex Philippides. Alex is a journalist at Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, and we are extremely happy to have him on our podcast. Welcome, Alex. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Alex. We're going to start today just hearing a little bit about your background. Oh, sure. I have been a reporter and editor for various news outlets for more than 30 years. Uh, originally, general interest for weeklies and later dailies. I've been covering biotech for more than a decade, including about four years at Genome Web and since 2011 at Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, with a focus at Gen, anyway, on biopharma, business news, and industry issues. My interest was trying to figure out how the world works and then explaining that to others. I guess that's been my sort of what drove me into that line of work. That's awesome, actually. You have a decade of experience writing in biotechnology, and that must have been really interesting to see changing trends over the years, right? I noticed that you write a lot about pharma and biotech, which is a very interesting field for us in particular because we are a biotech company. Maybe we could discuss any changing trends recently that you would like to share with us? Sure, sure. The first trend that really struck me in the decade or so of writing in biopharma has been that companies are now more eager to specialize in either one therapeutic area or a cluster of therapeutic areas, say three or four or five, as opposed to being all over the map. And I think the reason for that is the pressure that comes from investors and managers and others to show results for the money spent. And that's one big reason why you see a desire by biopharmas to pursue technology all the way to treatments through external collaborations in partnerships as opposed to keeping it all in-house. And the value for the bigger deals now more often crosses that billion-dollar threshold. I'll give you an example. Every year, Gen compiles and those are lists I compile at Gen as part of what I do here, a top 10 oncology collaborations list. And then last year, we noticed that the total value of the top 10 ranked collaborations was about $34.5 billion. That's up 32% from 10 deals we ranked in 2017 when we had $26 billion and change. And that just shows you how much importance the bigger biopharmas that get into these collaborations are placing in uh, cancer immunotherapies. And if we had to do that list again right now, and we will later this year, you can tell there's going to be a new number three because back in August, we had seen that where Genentech had committed up to $5 billion in potential milestone payments and royalties to Afamed under a collaboration to develop and commercialize novel NK cell engager-based immunotherapies to treat multiple cancers. And would that mean that companies are now becoming even more successful? So one thing, as you mentioned, was that they are trying to specialize in particular topics, but just based on their valuation, does that even mean that biotech is getting more attention now and they are getting more investment now? And would that also be a changing trend? More investment, yeah, in the last couple of years as the both the economy improved from the recession of a decade ago and we've seen, I think, more 
knowledge and interest by investors perceiving potentially big rewards. So the economy, especially the financing environment, we saw where one reason because the biotechs that get this investment have the newer cutting edge technologies that the pharma companies want and they're willing to spend the money, even if a lot of that is on the back end through milestones and royalty payments tied to, to sales. One example in recent, just in the last year or two, really, since is that even with the Wall Street slump we saw back in the fall, we saw a lot of IPO activity this past year in 2018. We just this week, Jen came out with the uh, top 10 global biopharma IPOs, and that top 10 raised a, a combined nearly $4.3 billion in net proceeds. And that's up about 47% from what was just under $3 billion, about 2.9 to be more precise, in net proceeds from the 10 companies in the 2017 IPO list. Another thing that was interesting with the IPOs was that all 10 companies this year, meaning in the 2018 period, raised more than $200 million in net proceeds. And that compares with just five of the top 10 that were ranked by Gen back in 2017. Also, we saw where China-based biopharm has accounted for four of the top five IPOs. And again, a lot of that's because the authorities in Hong Kong allowed for pre-revenue biotechs to begin listing their shares. And we saw a flurry of IPOs at 17 filed and six actually carried out uh, IPOs this past uh, year, 2018. And it also saw in this country the biggest U.S. IPO with Moderna, an RNA-based uh, drug developer that uh, raised $604 million on NASDAQ just in December. And it also showed one of the changes you asked me from the last few years is a tipping point for drugs based on some technologies that have shown success, RNA-based drugs, for example. We saw in August where uh, Al Nylum won FDA approval for Unpatro, first of the uh, RNAi-based drugs to win authorization by the agency, and, and others are expected. I find it very interesting what you mentioned that a lot of companies from China are on this list. And in general, recently, we have been hearing a lot about China in the biotech space. In your experience, do you think that one thing would be, is China growing really fast? And then the second thing would be, why is it now difficult for U.S. to keep up with the growing industry in China? Well, I mean, you see it in China where the state has invested a lot. But that investment has gone to education and developing a talent base. You know, for a long time, the thought was that, well, China was a good place to manufacture, perhaps, and to do so cheaply compared to the West. But there was not as much an emphasis until recent years in terms of developing innovative drugs and developing those through the market. I think that's changed. You've seen where there's been anecdotally increases in patent filings in China compared to the U.S. You've seen also companies, again, homegrown companies that have not only been able to make use of domestic workforces, but to reattract professionals who had gone and gotten their educations in the United States and the West 
back to China. And this is something the state has encouraged in recent years as a way of growing a, a domestic biotech industry. The uh, 13th five-year plan of a couple of years back had pinpointed biotech as one of a half dozen technology-based industries that the state wants to see expand. That has also helped. You see the results on the Hong Kong and Shanghai and, and Shenzhen uh, exchanges with new companies listing. I think the Hong Kong has gotten the most attention in the U.S. because the values that companies raised by going public there have been rather high. Great. Thanks for explaining that, Alex. I want to ask you about gene editing in particular. So one of the things that you have found is that more and more companies are becoming interested in gene editing. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Sure. We've seen two developments that interest me. One is the rise slowly but surely of companies specializing in gene editing starting up and showing some promise early on. I'll give you good three, four examples. You have CRISPR Therapeutics, which began phase one, two trials for a therapy that it's co-developing with Vertex, and that's CTX001 in beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease in January. Just earlier this month, got fast track from the FDA in sickle cell disease. So that means that there's more agency interaction, at least as long as the shutdown of the government doesn't affect it too much and the possibility of a quicker approval. That is an ex vivo CRISPR gene-edited therapy. It's for patients that suffer from beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease. A patient's uh, hematopoietic stem cells are engineered to produce high levels of fetal hemoglobin in red blood cells. And it is thought that by elevating uh, HBF through CTX001, that has potential to ease up on the transfusion requirements for beta thalassemia patients, as well as some of the sickle crises that sickle cell patients endure. But that's one example. Another company that's of interest to me is Editas Medicine. And at the recent JP Morgan conference earlier this month, they said they plan to initiate patient screening and patient dosing later this year for their first-to-the-clinic treatment, Edit 101. They're calling it the first in vivo CRISPR clinical trial in history. And that's a genome editing treatment candidate for Liber congenital omerosis type 10 or LCA10. Now, Editas has partnered on the development of this with Allergan in a deal that could generate up to $40 million for Editas. And that's one of several reflections of how some bigger biopharmas are starting to get interested in these technologies. A better example of big partners and big name collaborations is with Intellia Therapeutics. They've got two late-stage preclinical programs, but they still got some big names interested. One is for ATTR or transferritin amyloidosis, and uh, Intellia is partnered with Regeneron on that. Now they're conducting preclinical studies, and if that testing goes well, the thought is that they might be able to begin clinical testing in humans in the year 2020. Also, Intellia has a candidate in sickle cell disease with which it's partnered with Novartis. And that partnership goes back a couple of years, was expanded just last month in December to include ex vivo development of cell therapies using 
ocular stem cells, and Novartis would get the right to develop CRISPR-Cas9-based products for one or more targets using these cells. And in return, Novartis agreed to pay Intellia $10 million one time, and Intellia could also get milestone and royalty payments if the collaboration succeeds. Now, those three companies, CRISPR Therapeutics, Editas, and Intellia, are basing their gene editing therapeutics on CRISPR-Cas9. A whole different technology is employed by an actually older company in the field, Sangamo, and they're constructed zinc finger nucleases, and uh, those are based on human proteins that uh, are designed to recognize specific DNA sequences, and Sangamo says these offer high efficiency and, and extreme specificity. At J.P. Morgan, they presented data on a study of one drug candidate based on zinc finger nuclease technology is designed to modify liver cells that are deficient in Hunter syndrome. Those are the IDS enzyme cells. And also that Hunter syndrome is also known as MTS2. And when Sangamo presented data on SB913, they showed this is what they emphasize, that there was a significant reduction in glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, that accumulate in MPS2. However, there was concern, at least based on the reports, by analysts and others who commented on the presentation afterward that they had hoped that Sangamo would have been able to show that its therapy was actually increasing IDS levels. And that may emerge later this year because they've got additional data they're coming out with. And so that sort of remains to be seen ultimately, whether Sangamo has been emphasizing a 51% total reduction in GAGs with two GAGs that they identified in specific that have shown significant decreases, dermatan sulfate and heparin sulfate. Also, one thing of interest also in the gene editing space that I've seen, remember late last year, we had actually at Gen taken a look at and attempted to rank, and I think we did, top companies in gene editing-based technology, both public companies and private. We rank them differently. The public companies we ranked by revenue and the private companies by total capital raised. And there have been some pretty big financings for these companies. One very recent example in October, Synthago, a genome engineering platform developer, received $110 million in Series C financing. If you look at earlier in 2018, we'd seen as much, let me get an example, this BEAM Therapeutics, B-E-A-M, mm-hmm. and that company was launched in May and got $87 million in Series A financing. The co-founders of BEAM include Feng Zhang, who is a pioneer of CRISPR-Cas9, obviously, and Beam says they're looking to pursue new therapies using CRISPR technology, although I think more of the headlines were focused on Feng Zhang joining in as a co-founder. But there have been some even bigger financings, and one in the agricultural genome editing space was pairwise plants that raised $125 million, although that included $100 million from Monsanto before the completion of the Bayer acquisition They also got some Series A financing, also $110 million in Series B money by a company called Precision 
biosciences, single financing, and they're looking to further product development based on their own Arcus gene editing platform. It's derived from a natural genome editing enzyme called a homing endonuclease. With those and additional companies raising big sums, you're going to see a lot more players over time. And then it'll be up to them to use the money to actually succeed. Maybe some will get acquired in due time. But it's definitely that field is definitely going to look beyond just the CRISPR-Cas9 players that have been getting a lot of the attention at the moment. Yeah, no, you're right. I think that it's very interesting to know that pharma companies and biotech companies are now more collaborating rather than simply competing for the same methods because that is definitely what we need for more clinical trials in the future. And as a journalist, you probably work on the brink of companies and the public who actually consumes the information that you produce. So in that sense, I'm curious to know whether people are also as excited about these companies and in general about CRISPR and gene editing technologies. What do you think the public perception right now mm-hmm. is about CRISPR? I think there are a couple of publics. I think the public that is within biopharma and within broader science, I sense a lot of excitement, but also caution because many of the technologies have yet to thoroughly play out, let alone succeed. But I think there's more cautious optimism there, as well as, again, there's been some issues we saw about a month ago where He Jung Kuei had come out with a controversial genome editing study that resulted in the birth of twins. And that led to criticism within the science community about whether his choice to edit the CCR5 gene qualified as an unmet medical need and what the regulatory and informed consent approval processes were and the way he timed and released the uh, news of the study. But now there's another public, and that's a broader public that has frankly, less involvement in the science world. And if my Facebook feed is any indication, I see trouble. And that trouble is that even people that are well-educated in business or the arts or many professions that I know may not have a lot of knowledge about gene editing, let alone science in general. They might go by headlines and general interest news or worse, chat with their friends who are also not too technically knowledgeable. And so more often than I'd like, I hear fears expressed about playing God or creating a master race expressed very casually. Now, I think it arises from a a legitimate concern that the tools of gene editing may be abused by some for financial or or personal power or other purposes. I think it's important to remember that CRISPR and gene editing are tools. They can be used for good, such as to treat disease or for more vanity purposes. I think the challenge here is for responsible professionals and organizations, especially in the biopharma and gene editing communities, or dare I say the ecosystem, they need to address the issue by developing guidelines for responsible use of the technologies that are consensus that most can go along with. And I understand in that that, yeah, some researchers may not fall into line with these Standards, but it's not a reason not to address this. And I think a responsible framework could go far toward addressing the public and political concerns that arise. I think one of the reasons why there's worry, and it doesn't seem to be a related issue, and yet in a way it is, is the whole unease over how society pays for 
treatments. On the one hand, it's dazzling to see some of the new technologies and treatments being developed. And at the same time, there's no real, there's still such a challenge about how to get these new treatments priced so that industry feels it's getting back something for its investment, but yet governments and payers feel they're paying a fair price and people who need the drugs, the patients, don't feel they have to visit the poorhouse just to stay well. And that's a broader issue that winds up eroding support for even new treatments that do work. I mean, that's a continuing challenge, I think, for biopharma. And the gene editing community can help by showing what a responsible approach to addressing new technologies could be. Thanks, Alex. It's really interesting to see, you know, the different types of perceptions that different people have and what kinds of responsibilities are involved with gene editing technology. 2018 has really been a great year for biopharma, as you have described. How does 2019 look like? It could be good, but we don't know, or at least I don't, because I see a couple of uncertainties that I'm waiting to see sort of clear up. At least I'm hoping they'll clear up earlier this year rather than later. I think one major uncertainty is the state of the financial markets because they've yo-yoed just in recent months, let alone years. And we've seen, if you go back even three or four years, we saw, at least in the States, a slump because there was uncertainty over whether drug prices would be curbed. Then the market rallied when it became evident that there would not be any price curbs and that the larger companies could enjoy the tax cut that was enacted at the end of 2017. However, in this past year, we've seen where biopharma stocks have been caught up in the overall market slump where stock prices have fallen. And yet, if you look back since later December, since around Christmas time, you're seeing an uptick uh, again in biopharmas. And that's been a good place to see that yo-yo is the electronic transfer funds. These are the groups of biotech or pharma stocks that investors who maybe aren't as knowledgeable, instead of investing in an individual stock, they may invest in a group of stocks. And we've seen some of those prices bounce back. I'll just give one example. It's the uh, iShares NASDAQ biotechnology uh, ETF for electronic trading fund. And just since, well, since Christmas Eve, it has the uh, price of the combined stock has gone up 20 bucks a share from $89.61 to $108.56. And you're seeing some similar bounce backs with some of the other electronic transfer funds. Now, that's all fine and good right now. Is that going to continue or is that going to yo-yo back down? Nobody really knows. I mean, it's been encouraging seeing a thaw, if you will, in the trade war rhetoric between the U.S. and China and investors hope that that translates into some sort of longer-term solution so that stock prices don't fall. But that remains to be seen. Also up in the air is, are investors willing to continue showering these biopharmas with tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in private capital? We've definitely seen that the last year and a half. But over time, investors are going to want to see results, either individually or if the 
overall financial markets fall, and that gives investors a reason to kind of dial back. Also, another uncertainty, and you wouldn't think this would, but actually it is, is the state of the science itself, with a lot of companies expected to issue data or pursue their own clinical trials. Investors and others are going to be watching and waiting to look for the successes, they hope, spot them early, and then follow along and direct investments in, say, continued progress in cancer immunotherapy if that happens, as we've seen in past years. So I think it could be a good year, but I think there's still a couple of clouds in the sky to sort through. Yeah, thanks, Alex. I loved your synopsis of the stock market because you're in Silicon Valley. I have a lot of friends in tech who keep track of the stock market and they would always be talking about all the tech companies. And now it's great to see that biotech is entering those conversations and even everyone who's not in the field is also becoming more aware of these growing companies and these growing trends. So that's really great to see. So yeah, we always like to end on a fun question. So as a journalist, my question for you would be, have you had any celebrity moment? Because I'm sure you always interview amazing people. And my personal one was when I interviewed Carl Zimmer. So I'm just curious to know if you've had such a moment. Yeah, I've interviewed people Across the board, but I get the first print I think of it, you wouldn't think because he's not really in the science world so much, was a, a truck driver I had interviewed many years ago when I was just starting out as a reporter. And what struck me was that he offered some very timeless advice. He had run after a mugger who snatched a woman's chain, and he was able to catch the assailant and bring him to the police. And the one thing that struck me was he said, treat others the way you want to be treated. And I think that's, it may sound Sunday school to some, but I think it's a very sound approach, whether you're in the lab or whether you're driving a truck. It always struck me that in order to succeed in the news or or any business, you first have to master being a human being. (laughs) That's great advice, Alex. I completely agree. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alex. It was really a pleasure speaking with you today. And if any of our listeners would like to contact you, what is the best way to reach you? Best way? By email. And I'll give that. That's afilipidis at jenangnews.com. And I'll spell that. A-P as in Peter, H-I-L-I. Two P's as in Peter, I-D as in David, I-S as in Sam. That's afilipidis at G-E-N, it's a Nancy, E-N-G, N-E-W-S dot com. Afilipidus at jenningsnews.com. And I'd be great to hear from you. I am on Twitter at Alex Westchester. And that's another uh, good way I sometimes hear from people. And look forward. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, For more great CRISPR content, please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo, produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.